Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, I'm welcoming Ira Israel. Ira is a licensed professional clinical counselor, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and a mindful relationship coach. Ira is the author of How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. Ira, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Rebecca. So what um, inspired you to put this book together? Um, There was a study done, and it was actually published in The Guardian a few years ago that um, there are 100 million prescriptions for antidepressants written in the United States. Our population is 330 million, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know how many of those are adults. Uh, It's probably, you know, but it's a very large percentage. Actually, 22 million Americans uh, take antidepressants every morning. Uh, so I wanted to find out, like, what are these actually twin epidemics of depression and anxiety, and are there other ways to, to treating them than pharmaceuticals? Well, you know, we are talking a lot about this it's in the news all the time about how depression and anxiety is on on the rise. And, um, you know, there's, I, I, we could probably talk about this at every show that I do, no matter what I'm talking about, because there's so many reasons for this. Um, but, you know, your, your book is just fo- focusing, um, you know, as you say, now that you're an adult. So you're surviving your childhood now that you're an adult and you're you're specific about that part. Um, so so why is is that so important for you? Well, it's funny. I don't want to go off the deep end, um, but one of the things I study is um, uh, Advaita Vedanta or Hinduism. And I, and I, in my classes at S1 and Kapalu, I, I teach yoga in addition to psychology and, and philosophy. So it's fascinating. Um, what I say on one of my DVDs is that Depression relates to thoughts about the past. Anxiety relates to thoughts about the future. The past no longer exists. It's dead and gone. The only thing that exists about the past is your story. And the future doesn't yet exist. The only thing that exists about the future are your imaginations or your, you know, your planet. So how can depression and anxiety exist? So I use that, provoc- I use that provocative statement to try to get people to you know, uh, to try to empower people to to make healthier choices to keep themselves at the high ends of their happiness spectrums and try to alleviate some of that depression and anxiety. Well, so I think you're, uh, there's a, a quote that I saw once where depression is if you're sad about your past and anxiety is if you're worried about your future. So this is where you're right. getting that from? Um, that's an interesting thing. I made the DVD in 2008, so uh, I, the only other person I've heard say that is Marianne Williamson. But I, I don't know if you say if you have a quote from somewhere earlier than 2009, then you know. I'm not sure where I read that from, but um, you know, I, I um, I've had that in my head for a long time, and it you know it does make sense. It's like either we're if we're depressed, we are worried about something that has happened or a series of events that have led to where we are, um, and then you know usually if we're we're anxious, we're worried about what's going to happen in an hour, in a day, in a year, mm-hmm. um, and you know we're not usually anxious about what has already happened because we know what's happened. 
but we don't really realize the implications or ramifications of uh, growing up in the systems that we grow up within. And that's what I look at in the book. As you notice, there's like a chapter on, uh, you know, capitalism, democracy, uh, the myth of romantic love. There, they, for me, our school system, all these things need to be analyzed because, um, you know, they could be outdated and they could be causing some of these problems. I mean, in America... Our school system was established to make factory workers, you know, 250 years ago. You know, the CHAD system for voting was is extremely efficacious 260 years ago. But nowadays, if you want to live in a democracy, you know, we all need to be voting by our telephone. And so, what, like, what I'm trying to do is inspire people to take a look at the, the, the ground beneath our feet, the things that we uh, assume are, quote-unquote, normal. There's a beautiful quote by Marshall McLuhan that I use in the book. He says, I don't know who discovered water, but I doubt it was a fish. So none of us have a, 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 a great insight into our, our own way of being in the world. Um, a lot of us, uh, unfortunately, use our relationships or, you know, because we feel um, so comfortable in our relationships that we, you know, we get some insight into how mad or sad we really are. But, you know, the, you know, that's what psychotherapy is for, is to be able to uh, have someone mirror back to you, you know, your way of being in the world. So that's actually one of the things, one of the benefits of being in, in some sort of therapy, to, you know, to, to, to see how you're coming across to other people. So, um, you know, the book really uh, hopefully inspires people, raises consciousness around uh, all these things so that they just don't walk into a doctor's office and they say, oh, yeah, you know, I hate my job and uh, I hate my relationship, and the doctor puts them on antidepressants, you know, because that uh, is all too common in our culture. Well, you know, it, it's very common, and it's not just for, for depression. We, we like to cover up a lot of things instead of changing diet or lifestyle. But, you know, it, it, it is sad to me that when people are going through a, a mental health crisis, that, that that's what happens instead of trying to get help. I mean, medication has has its place for sure, and, and it's necessary. But especially if it's necessary, I think we need to be seeing a medical professional to, to talk through what's going on and try to find either a different outlook or or get help with the situation of, of some kind, and that doesn't seem to be happening. Well, the interesting thing is that, that all the pharmaceuticals are amazing in the short run. And when the doctors prescribe them for a month or, or six weeks or two months or three months, that's fantastic, you know, to, to, to keep people on their feet. Unfortunately, you feel so good <laughs> a lot of the time. That, you know, even though there's the disclaimer that uh, this Lexapro or this uh, Suboxone or this uh, Klonopin is not addictive, you know, we, we really enjoy those feelings. So they're not physically addictive, but unfortunately, you know, I have a, I've worked with a lot of patients who have been, they come in, they're on these uh, cocktails of antidepressants for 20 years, and they're just like, every time they, uh, they try to go off them, there's a, there's a, there's a problem. Well, and, and the problem, are you talking about that they're addicted to it or that they haven't dealt with the depression so that that's still there when they try to go off of them? This is an interesting thing. So what I ask is when we look at the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, what is the barometer for mental health in our country? And if you really read between the lines, and this is my own uh, understanding this might be offensive to some people, but if you really look between the lines of the 800-page DSM, you'll find, I believe, 
that our barometer of mental health is can you get your butt into your chair at work and do 10 hours of work? And if you can't, then we have some medications that can help you do that. And I'm saying that's a serious problem. Mm-hmm. Well, it, well, it is because if you're working 10 hours a day, of course, you, you don't have a good quality of life anyway. And, um, you know, you're probably not spending time with your family and you're probably not doing things that you love. And, um, you know, you're, you're probably just stressed out and, and tired and need a good vacation, which, you know, there's not a lot of. And, yeah. yeah. Um, if you read Sonia Lubomirsky's book, I think it's The How of Happiness. Um, she goes into some studies done in Germany where people who have jobs, no matter what they do, if you, if you do anything for money, you'll be unhappy. And if you have a career, which is essentially, you know, a lawyer, engineer, doctor, that you do consistently for 30 or 40 years, you'll be slightly less miserable. But, you know, we're, we, I think human beings uh, enjoy novelty. So, you know, we like to change things up again. And what she found in these studies was the only people who are happy are the people who know their vocation. So voco in Latin means calling, right? So the universe gives us information. It says, oh, I enjoy painting. I enjoy writing songs. I enjoy running on the beach. I enjoy hiking. I enjoy swimming. I enjoy running. And, um, you know, if you are flipping burgers or driving an Uber or doing something else 10 or 12 hours a day for money because, you know, you have to pay your rent or pay your mortgage or, or your kids, whatever you have to pay for, you know, then obviously it's going to cause problems. Well, it, it, it is, and that brings me to um, the last line of the, the title of your book, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, t- you talk about that in detail at the beginning of the book, the authenticity part. So is, is, mm-hmm. is, is there more to it than what you just said? Well, for me, I broke it down after years of study. Uh, so obviously, you know, I have degrees in philosophy in religious studies and psychology and also sociology. And for me, I broke down authenticity into attachment, atonement, attunement, presence, and congruence. And we can go through all five of those things, but what, what the, the thing that was most compelling was in relation to happiness, the only, uh, well, I, I, well I, I'm hesitant to use the word panacea because, uh, you know, authenticity is not a cure, but, it, you know, it's your best bet for, uh, there are myriad influences why people are unhappy. But, but you know, if you want to keep yourself at the high end of your happiness spectrum, for me, you have to learn how to interact authentically with other people. And to do that, you have to really know yourself. And, you know, that's why I go through these steps in the book of attachment, atonement, attunement, presence, and congruence. So um, w- with this as well, I mean, you talk about um, in your book when, when we're children and we're learning a certain behavior because, say, we don't want to get in trouble from a- an adult. So we're learning to sit still, even though our body's telling us not to. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, as an, a, a simple example, and, and of course, that wouldn't be. Um, if from what you're saying, if I have this right, that wouldn't be authentic to to what's right for you. And so we've learned okay. these behaviors. Is that is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, the way I like to frame it, and this is somewhat provocative, is that um, we raise children the same way we tame pets in America. 
So when I have 35, 40 year old people in my office and they're saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a phony. Um, if anyone found out how, what a loser I really was, I wouldn't be president of this company. You know, I, this is wrong with me and that's wrong with me, or I'll only be happy when I have a Lamborghini or I'll only be happy when I'm married to Brad Pitt or whatever it is. I always ask them, you know, were you born with any baby born with negative self-talk? The answer is obviously no, right? So we have mm-hmm. to see where that language comes from. So babies want to um, eat when they're hungry, play when they're playful, defecate when they need to defecate, and, uh, and sleep when they need to sleep. And what we do very quickly is put them on a schedule to make them into workers. So we say, okay, you wake up at 7 o'clock. Eating time is not when you're hungry, but it's at 7.30, you know. Uh, play time is at 9 o'clock, not when you're playful. Uh, the nap time is at uh, uh, 10.30. And so the, the, the way we do this a lot of times, unfortunately, is through negative languaging. Don't stick your tongue in a socket. Don't get C's or B's in school. Don't jab your sister with a fork. Don't defecate here. Don't do these things. Don't do these things. Don't do these things. And then we wonder why 35 years later we have this epidemic of low self-esteem and negative self-talk. So, um, yes, authentic, to answer your question, uh, authentically, babies want to do things that, that they want to do. And we've consistently uh, lowered the age on making them into productive workers. You know, so we're just trying to, you know, get them onto adult schedules as early as possible. And so how, um, I mean, you're talking about the schedule, but this obviously goes to a deeper core. Uh, you know, in your book, you're, you're, you talk a lot about how people are trying to fit um, this this uh, box that we're supposed to fit into for success. So you're supposed to have a job, you're supposed to work hard, you're supposed to have a family, right. a house, the car, the vacation, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And, and, and what your question is, is that actually what we want or is that causing a lot of the stress that we're, we're under because we're just well, trying to fit that? It's a lot worse that. than that. It's, it's so much worse than that because we're interdependent creatures and what we do in our school system is immediately pit kids against each other and make them competitive. You know, if you if you're on if you have this grading scale where you have like one person or two people get A's or hundreds or whatever, you're constantly having them measure themselves against other people, and they don't. It, it's not you know like when I teach my classes at Esalen Capallo, at the end of it, I I go into this whole thing about how you know we need to reframe our paradigm so that. I can't be great unless you're great. Like, I want you, Rebecca, to be great. I want your show to thrive. I'm going to post it all over social media because I need you to be great. Rather than, you know, we live in this society of hoarders and, you know, they think that the pie is finite and that if you have a slice of the pie, then it's not their slice of the pie. And we need to totally reframe our school system so that, like, you know, everyone rises together and we're all great. Uh, which I agree with. I think we, we should be doing that. And, you know, I've done uh, two different shows, one on the boy crisis and one on our our girl crisis. And although the crises are slightly different just because roles have changed and pressure has changed, um, and, and so there's these, these gender pressures, the, the pressure is still there, and, the, and it's the pressure to look a certain way and behave a certain way and, mm-hmm. and meet expectations that maybe we don't even understand. We're just thinking that these expectations are there. And then we have all these unhappy children, and we 
have high suicide mm-hmm. rates, and then as you said, you know, all this medication that people are being prescribed, and 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 it's that that pressure that just doesn't seem right because you know we've got kids who are quite young feeling this way, and and it doesn't seem like you know as children they should feel that pressure to to be as you know this perfect well, person. The, the suicide rate is extremely high. I don't think it's ever been higher. The opioid crisis, you know, that's an epidemic. I mean, people are trying to numb themselves out rather than, you know, have to deal with the the competition that they're dealing with and all the stress that that uh, being part of these systems is causing so they they check out. So for me, Instead of looking, you know, for band-aid solutions, I want to look at our society. I want to look at this, all the things that we consider to be normal, like the myth of romantic love, uh, you know, the things that we learn about romantic relationships from watching Pretty Woman and other movies. Um, I want to look at capitalism, I want, uh, you know, which is essentially based on Herbert Spencer's dictum, survival of the fittest, which is a, 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 a winner-takes-all mentality. And, you know, uh, we, we need to look at all these systems, even science. Uh, what is the mandate of science? The mandate of science is truth. And how do we uh, arrive at that? We arrive at that through the Hegelian dialectic, which is, you know, someone proposes a thesis like, oh, the sky is blue. And then someone opposes the antithesis like, but it's going to rain tomorrow. And then a third person, or then you get the thesis, the, 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 synthesis, the synthesis. Sorry about that. And so what I'm looking at is, well, what are the ramifications if you use the phrase, yes, but, after, in a discussion? Because it actually negates what the other person, what the first person says. And yet we have this whole system of communicating so that if you, if you listen to other people talking, you'll, you'll find a lot of time. One person says, oh, you know, this, there's this fantastic sale at Barney's. And the other person says, Yes, but the sale at Nordstrom is going to be even better next week. And so they arrive at truth, but the interaction is really um, invalidating the first person's emotional experience. So what I'm trying to address in the book is how do we change these ways of being to yes and rather than yes but. Hmm. Um, that that's uh, very powerful. Um, we're going to talk more about this when we get uh, back from this break. We're talking today with Ira Israel, and we're discussing his book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult. We'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-294. 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. 
Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417. Or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Welcome back. Today we're talking with Ira Israel and we're discussing his book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult. So Ira, one thing I think is really important to talk about is what is happiness? Well, that's fascinating. So I I always use this quote by Mick Brown, um, who says that, uh, you know, happiness cannot be uh, sought after. It's actually a, a side effect or a ramification. So for me, it's all about constructing a life that will keep you at the high end of your happiness spectrum. And we know the tools that, that do that, you know, so it's, it's, there's a science behind it. And, you know, we need as well-balanced lives. We need um, uh, loving, supportive relationships. We need to eat healthily. We need to sleep the right amount for our bodies. Uh, we need to exercise. There's all sorts of things, you know, in terms of the science of happiness. And then we can, uh, you know, benefit from the, the, the fruits of our labors. But, um, you know, the interesting thing that it, for most Americans is that we live in a country where the inalienable right uh, to pursue happiness is a part of our, you know, um, founding fathers' wishes. And ironically, pursuing happiness is a surefire way to misery. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you study Buddhism, you know, the root of all suffering is desire. So if you're sitting there saying, I desire to be happy, I desire to be happy, I desire to be happy, you're going to be miserable. And, and you know, oh, everybody, you know, knows that now. So instead, what we should be doing is constructing balanced lives through a, through full of loving relationships and, um, you know, just really uh, use the tools that are available to be healthy and loving. Well, and and like we talked about in the first segment, there's this idea of what will make us happy. So, uh, you know, we need to go to school, get an education and be successful and be the top of everything and then um, achieve as much as we can and get the best paying job and buy a home and have kids and and achieve all that. And I I think that's what, what's happening is most people are achieving that or maybe not achieving that because they're working so hard and it's not happening right. and, and they're they're not getting the satisfaction out of their lives that they thought that they would get when they were 13 and started doing all of this. Yeah, the point is that it doesn't matter if you achieve that or not, uh, you won't be happy. Uh, It's a fiction. I mean, the American dream, when uh, people started talking about it in the 50s and 60s, was about, uh, you know, personal integrity and, uh, you know, loving your neighbor and having values. And, you know, it shifted in the 70s and 80s into homeownership 
And so as I state in the book, you know, the average person has a mortgage of $222,000. And then the average uh, student loan in America is $26,000. And the average credit card loan is $4,000. So for me, you know, um, there's this fiction where, you know, you have to do these things. You have to go to a good school and you have to buy a home and you have to do this and that. And those things get people onto a monthly nut so that they really can't pursue their dreams. Because if you're, you know, there's something called golden handcuffs. So if you, you know, get out of school when you're 21 or 22 and you get a job and you're 30 years old and you've worked your way up and you're making $150,000 a year, but you're, you know, you have a mortgage for $3,000 and then you have a kid in private school, basically, no matter what happens, you're, you're just like trapped in that job. And even if you hate it and hate your boss and you just loathe going to work every day, there's nothing you can do because, you know, you're, you're not going to find a job that, that, that enables you to, you know, make that much money. So, you know, I'm really uh, hoping that the book inspires people to find the things that they love and listen to the universe and, and you know, try to make their contributions to society in a way that also nourishes their own soul. Well, and I... I, I actually learned a really hard lesson um, of quite a few years ago where, you know, I got trapped in all that and uh, I bought a house. And it, as soon as I got in the house, I realized that that's not what I wanted. I didn't want to take care of it. I didn't want to pay the extra that a house cost. And um, and once I admitted that to myself, I actually sold the house and, and bought a condo again. But that was a really expensive lesson to learn because we, yeah. we, we're told that we're supposed to get all these things in that market being successful and and if you don't have these boxes checked yeah you know there can even be judgment not just from yourself I know we judge each other on these things that you know you're not there yet because you don't have this or you're not doing that expensive vacation and we compete with the Joneses you know trying to do all of this and they're just in as much debt and just as unhappy as we're all trying to win a race that really has has no trophy at the end just a lot of debt and unhappiness you know yeah Gertrude Stein famously said of Oakland, but she said, there's no there there. So, you know, we need to reduce what we want and be happy with what we have. And that's why I'm sure all the the people on your show talk about the importance of gratitude and gratitude replacing the resentment that the mind creates. You know, the mind creates these woulda, coulda, shoulda, didn't. Like, oh, I'd be happy if I had married this person or if I had gone to this school, if I had gotten that job, if I had done this or that. But those things didn't happen, right? And so you're here now, and so the only thing you can do is replace those resentments, wanting something to be different. This is chapter eight from my book. Wanting something different that you can't change. Wanting something to be different that it's just impossible to change the past, right? But your mind is sitting there, you know, doing these machinations while you're meditating or running or while you're at your desk or playing on Facebook. Oh, you know, I'd be happy if blank. And, you know, that's the thing that causes suffering, those machinations. And really, you know, compared to the 3.5 billion people who live on a dollar ninety a day, most of your listeners, myself included, are exceptionally privileged. You know, to know that we have a roof over our heads and to know that, like, we don't have to worry about lunch, you know, where it's coming from. Do we have enough money? Are we going to survive the next three or four hours? Is there some kind of sickness that's, you know, going to overtake us that's some, that we can't go to a doctor and cure? You know, like we're so privileged. And yet, as I say, said in the beginning, there's 22 million Americans taking antidepressants every morning. So we need to look at like what's going on. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and 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 that's what what you're addressing. Which thank you so much for doing that. I think that um, you know we need way more um, conversations like this, so that you know it was a very hard lesson for me to learn, and I don't think it should be that hard. Um, that this is you know that was not what I wanted to do, and um, I need to you know it just went wrong because I wasn't listening to my to myself because I actually you know there was a little voice saying this is the wrong thing, but I did it anyway, and and. You know, and I think that's a lot of, of what happens. We do it anyway because of those outside pressures and we're not listening to ourselves. And that's where we can get very depressed or, or anxious because mm-hmm. we're, we're not being, as you say, authentic to our core mm-hmm. and what we need. There's a beautiful phrase by Carolyn Mace. I can't remember. Uh, it's on a, uh, I've done one of her uh, tapes or something. And she says, you either co-create your life with spirit or you'll get fired. Your wife will cheat on you. Uh, you know, something bad will happen. You'll get a, you'll get a disease. You'll get something, you know, and that is the, the, the universe giving you information. So, you know, as a, on the one hand, you know, what I'm trying to do, as I said, is empower people to, you know, listen to all the things that are going around them and then make healthy decisions, long-term decisions. Uh, that's go- that are going to bode well for them over the next 20, 30 years in terms of happiness. And if you, you know, if your if your marriage is dead, or if you're not uh, inspired by your job, or you know, there's some things that are that are wrong in your life, including you know some sort of depression and anxiety, then you know, take a look at like the way you've constructed your life and maybe make some tweaks. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you, I mean, you are addressing all of this in your book. Um, but, you know, one thing before we go into how, how you, you're doing that, I, I, we're talking about jobs and we're talking about school, but you also address romance. Um, we have this mm-hmm. expectation for, for romance and our love life to be a certain way. And how is that affecting us? Well, it's... Um something that we all need to look at because of pop culture and because of the things that we are are exposed to. So I think it was 1949, Denis de Rougemont in France wrote a book called L'Amour et l'Occident, Love in the Western World. And then uh, in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, Robert A. Johnson wrote a book called We, talking about the psychology of romantic love. And what I'm studying right now in terms of romanticism is its links to democracy and capitalism and all these other systems. So um, you know, I joke around in my seminars and I say marriage for life was a fantastic idea in the 13th century when we lived to be 27. But now that we're living to be 87, marriage for life is not uh, a great idea. You know, it's a, it's a billion dollar marriage industry and a billion dollar divorce industry. And like, it's, it's not, you know, divorce is one of the most traumatic things that any human being will ever go through. So like, we really need to look at these systems that we have in place, such as marriage for life, and then the whole concept of soulmates. Are you supposed to have one soulmate, or maybe four or five, or maybe at different times in your life you need to learn different things, or, you know, maybe you're supposed to have a child with this one person, but, you know, you really, you know, there's other things that are that are not feeding your soul. So we're, we're, we really have to take a look at the myth of romantic love. And the things that we learn, you know, um, there's examples in the book like Tom Cruise in the elevator with, with Renee Zellweger and Jerry Maguire. I think it's he who says, uh, you, you complete me. And then I say in the book, well, that's a really horrible situation because if somebody completes, if you're not whole and somebody completes you, 
then like that person's not always going to be there. That's a problem, right? They, mm-hmm. they could, they could die. They could go away. They could find someone else. So you have to show up a relationship whole in yourself. And then, you know, uh, then you can, you know, be in a relationship that, that inspires you, that, that, you know, you wake up every morning and you say, wow, this person is amazing. You know, I, I can't wait for to hear what he or she has to say today. We can learn things together. We can travel together. We can do amazing things. But, you know, right now, unfortunately, we live under a system where a lot of people think that the other part, another person is the missing part of them because we're through social media and through traditional media, we're taught that we are unwhole and that there's a missing part of us out there. So that's what I go into in the book. But I mean, this is just from Robert Johnson's work and from Denise de Houchemont. And there's a, a woman from Hebrew University who's uh, Eloise and also Esther Perel. You know, uh, she talks about all these things, too. And we really have to... Uh, examine our systems for the way we relate with other people and what we want from relationships and then, you know, uh, think about them in a more authentic manner rather than in the ways that we're thinking about them that we learn from movies like Pretty Woman or or other romantic uh, films. Well, well, there, there's that, and and I think just along with you know um, going to school and being successful and getting the good grades and the best job, we're also looking for that perfect partner who's going to fit that mold and getting married at that certain time and having that perfect everything, and and you know it it's not like that you know it, the the Disney movies end when when the couple gets together, but what about the struggles after they're together when you know because exactly. that continues to happen. It's never perfect, especially... Right. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's so interesting. So films either end in one of three ways. They either end as a a tragedy where one or more of the romantic people die, but then when one or more of them die... Then the love is sealed forever, and you don't, you don't sit, you don't have to address the like uh, washing the dishes in the morning because you know someone's dead, and you just have that memory of the idyllic relationship. The second way is the comedy, which is they drive into the sunset together. And again, as you said so correctly, that uh, we don't see them, you know, washing the dishes or fighting over the uh, the whether the toilet seat should be up or down, or who forgot to put gas in the car, or who's going to wash the blank. You know, so, and then the third way is bittersweet, which is interesting, but it's the same way films seal in an idea that the relationship is, is, is solid in some ways. And we really don't see them working on internal problems so much as external problems and addressing them. And then, you know, it ends either like Titanic or, uh, or some other, um, uh, way where they drive into the sunset. Well, yeah, and and it it I think it puts a funny idea in people's heads because they go through this this fairy tale. They have this fairy tale wedding, and perhaps their romance was like that, and um, and then it you know once that wedding is over what what now you know you you do hear about people getting depressed just because that thing that they worked for is is over and then what do you do and then you have this relationship and it's not perfect and you thought it would be um and i think we have that this weird idea about you know everything and we're not listening to ourselves enough 
Exactly. That's a very <laughs> beautiful way of putting it. We have a, we do have a weird idea about everything. That's the that yeah. type of thing. You know, you know, I don't know who discovered water, but I doubt it was a fish. So we're all those fish. You know, we're trapped in the language. We don't realize that. Language is a cage. Language is a prison. Most people have the same thoughts today that, that, they, that they had yesterday. Most of our thoughts are the same. They're redundant and they're negative. Our minds have a negativity bias because negativity keeps us safe. And the mind's primary job is to keep us safe. But, it, but again, these things, to me, are inauthentic, right? You need to learn how to be present, to be here now in this moment, rather than in that terrible breakup you went through five years ago, or in that car accident, or your parents' divorce, or whatever terrible things happened to you when you were 7, 11, 12, 14. That's why the title of the book is How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, because you have a choice. You can, you know, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, when asked, who's your greatest teacher? He's the premier spokesperson of Buddhism in the West. So obviously he should say the Buddha is his greatest teacher. What does he say? Who's your greatest teacher? The Chinese, who killed two million of his people. That's his greatest teacher. So we need to understand that our mind looks back on our childhood, as I said before, and creates these woulda, coulda, shoulda, didn't. But really, until we own our entire lives, until we own every moment of it, like Cheryl Strayed so beautifully does at the end of her book Wild, or uh, Nietzsche writes in the in the echo uh, in the end of uh, at the end of his life in his book Echo Homo, he says, "How could I not be grateful to every moment of my life?" And his life was difficult. He had migraines. He had he had a lot of illnesses and things. But he at the end he says, "How could I not be grateful to every instant of my life?" And even Wittgenstein. On his deathbed, his last words were, tell them it was a wonderful life. And he was a, he was a very dire uh, person, you know. So we really have to take, you know, on your deathbed. And this is why I love the millennials and the kids today, because they know our generation was taught. I don't know how old you are. I'm 53. Our generation was taught that if you have a lot of material possessions, you'll be happy. And all those people, you know, are not happy. So the kids today, they know that on their deathbed, the only thing they will remember are experiences. You're going to remember walking through the streets of Paris at dawn, kissing a wonderful human being. You're not going to remember the handbag that you were wearing. You know, like, like mm-hmm. when not, you, 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 you know that experiences trump material possessions. So go out there and make wonderful experiences. Well, you know, and that, that's um, really important, I think, for, for all of us. Um, a little younger than you, but I'm not a millennial. And, uh, you know, I was brought up a, a little bit in a different way. But, you know, thing, things definitely, although my parents tried hard, um, they're there, you know, and, and that um, there was some expectations. And, and I think that, you know, we just, like you're saying, we just need to be authentic to ourselves and, and really listen to, to what we're saying, you know, deep down about what is important. Yeah. Well, the only thing that correlates strongly with happiness in the long-term uh, longitudinal studies is the quality of our intimate relationships. And that's why there's a whole chapter in the book on attachment theory, because we have um, predispositions that we learn. You know, the, the, uh, we learn either very early that the world is a secure place and we can lean in and be safe because our interactions with our parents taught us that when we were two days old or two weeks old. Or... We learn, wow, the world is a really scary place, and if I don't protect myself and hoard and me, 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 I'm going to get hurt. 
And and what all I'm asking people to do in the in my book is be aware of your 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 attachment style, whether it's secure or one of the three types of insecure attachment. And then you know when you're sitting there in the present moment and your boyfriend doesn't text back in five minutes and your mind says he's with another girl, right? You say mm-hmm. okay, you know yes somebody cheated on me 20 years ago or yes it's possible but you know i'm in this loving relationship my mind doesn't have to be suspicious all the time the world is a safe place i'm just going to breathe into it and wait for him to text me back Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Ira Israel, and we're discussing his book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult. And we'll be back shortly to discuss this more. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. We're on the pulse of the world with great shows and hosts. The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel is also on Twitter. We've got ideas to keep you healthy, breaking health news, and more. Follow us on Twitter at Voice AM Health. That's at Voice AM Health. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Welcome back. Today we're talking with Ira Israel and we're discussing his book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult. So, um, Ira, we, we, we talked a lot about, um, you know, what, what's going wrong. Um, what can people do to be more authentic in their lives? Well, for me, the one thing I learned from living in France for three years is the, the power of long meals. I mean, we're, we're, we're interdependent creatures. We, we live for tens of thousands of years in tribes of 140 or 150 people. And now living in cities, people are isolated, people are alienated, and the alienation, I believe, foments depression. So we have to know that, yes, uh, you know, some people are jerks and some people are going to take advantage of us, but we still have to, you know, continuously try to create community. And and really, for me, it's, it's all about, you know, like, um, making dinner parties and, and inviting people to lunch. And unfortunately for me, I happen to live in a very, very competitive community where people schedule other people in for 20 minutes in between Pilates classes and, and going to Whole Foods or things like that. But I, I really enjoy, you know, just like 
getting 10 people and saying, let's meet here at 8 o'clock on Friday night. And, you know, no one's going to anything else that evening. That's what we're doing. And you just sit there and you, you talk about the art and literature and politics and things like that. So for me, it's about having, being passionate about uh, interests. Uh, such as, uh, you know, what's going on in the world and what, what our artists and musicians think uh, about our, our society, and then being able to, to chat about them and compare notes and, and, and really just to sit with other human beings. The, the most famous uh, quote in the book, for, the, from what I've heard, is mirror neurons do not fire via text message. So we need face-to-face interactions with other human beings to know that we're not crazy. Because a lot of our interactions with people and what happens in social media and Facebook and things invalidates our emotional experience of the world. And then we walk around thinking, oh, I'm all alone. Nobody cares about me. You know, I got 5,000 Facebook friends, but I need to move my couch and I can't find one single person to come over and pick up the other end of the couch. I mean, we live in a crazy, crazy world. So we really have to just try to make human connections as much as possible. Give hugs. That's what I tell people. Give hugs. You know what? That's uh, that's really good advice. And I was having this conversation earlier this week. Um, you know, I, I treat people with with very severe chronic illnesses, especially chronic Lyme disease, which is part of my story. And I always understand how lonely they feel because when you're sick and isolated, being on you know social media really isn't contact with somebody. You know, somebody can like what you say, and people can even know what's going on. But you need people near you touching you and having a conversation with yeah. you and hearing you and and you know the the pictures we put on social media aren't aren't as you say authentic of who we are anyway right. you know people are making themselves look different look and trying to fit that mold mm-hmm. that that you and I are talking about how we have to break that um, so it, it it the more that we go down this technology route the more isolated we are and and it just seems to be getting worse and worse But for me, I have to analyze it under the frame of capitalism. So we're taught, and I discuss this in the book, we're taught always to put our best foot forward and show people that we're happy so that they hire us and give us money and think that it's always going to be pleasant to be around us while we're working together. And that's not the case. All human beings have a range of, of emotion, and we're entitled to, to, to feel sad when things are, are, are sad in our lives. You know, there's this crazy thing that happened three years ago in America. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but the, the DSM-5 came out, and there was a bereavement exemption for depression, meaning that if, um, if you were had five of the symptoms for depression, uh, the doctor would have to ask you if someone had died in your life, like your husband or your child in the last two weeks, and then they couldn't uh, uh, assign the diagnosis of depression if you had experienced a death rapid, uh, recently. And so the last DSM eliminated the bereavement exemption because they found that the same pharmaceuticals that work on depression work on bereavement. And so, again, that, uh, tying this from the first section, what is the barometer of mental health in our culture? It's can you work? Can you show up at your job? And that is really what's so um, uh, detrimental to uh, our emotional well-being because if someone dies in our lives, we need to grieve. You know, we, mm-hmm. need to, we need to, you know, go away for a month and do something and not worry about, you know, whether we are returning emails or what we're doing for our jobs. Like, we really, we are, the bandwidth for emotional experience in our culture 
is so thin, what we consider to be accept- uh, acceptable emotional experience, our culture does not like angry women, our culture does not like sad men. And, you know, hopefully at this point in time, you know, we're, we're learning that, like, work is not the most important thing, money is not the most important thing, but connection is the most important thing, like how to really sit there and, you know, throw a Frisbee and chat about, the, you know, your favorite things and really connect with other people. That's what causes happiness, not looking at your Bitcoin account or your checking account or seeing how much money you have or what, how many purses you earn your, your closet or how many shoes. None of those things make you happy. And a lot of us have been, you know, fooled into thinking that material possession makes people happy. And that's just not the case. No, and I'm glad you you brought up that um, topic about the bereavement because that's an example of how we're we're not letting ourselves you know feel things. If you're just going to get medication and then you're able to go to work because you're not feeling the grief that you need to go through, um, you know there there's there is something wrong with that because it, you have to. There's a loss there, and that's a um, that's what our lives are about, or the people that are in it. So if we oh we got to go back to work in a week, even though I lost my partner or my sister or whoever um that where's the value what, what's more important like the losing this person so close to your your job you know where i don't know i think we have our priorities wrong exactly and that's why like there's these systems and every chapter in the book analyzes a different system and we have to learn that like we, we're we're we didn't come out of uh, nothing. Like we have these ideas because of these systems such as like, Oh, I I live under this uh, paradigm that the American dream means that you go $220,000 in debt. And, you know, I'm going to judge other people for not owning homes because I went $220,000 into debt and they didn't. I mean, it's just like those things as we discussed are insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and then of course the judging other people so that you know they fit into that box that we felt like we had to fit into, and um, you know it's um, or if we can't fit into it, judging other people that do, which is also something um, that can be quite wrong. Um, what what do you recommend um, that people somebody do if if they're feeling this is affecting them? How should they get started? You have to learn how to listen to the universe. And I know that sounds a little woo-woo, but like for me, we're constantly receiving information and our mind is like a sieve and it just like strains out 99% of the information. So through meditation for me um, and other, you know, I don't know, symphonies or, or going to museums, you know, we need to really open up our, our, our minds and expand our horizons and see what's out there and not think that we're limited into, you know, the traditional, whatever the mold is in America, 2.3 kids and the husband drives this type of car and the wife drives this type of car. You know, we're, we're, everything's been blown open in the past 20 years by this information age. And we're, we're living in this wonderful spring where you can create the life that you want to create. And that's why there's a chapter in the end on congruence. Congruence to me is really tapping into all the information that you're receiving, your sicknesses, your relationships, your, the sports you like, everything, and constructing a, an, an ideal life. And, the, you know, the, the phrase that you saw on the first page of the book is by Andre Gide, which is, it is better to be hated for what you are than to be loved for what you are not. So that's why, for me, we have to 
figure out who our authentic selves are and, and then, you know, create a life that's in alignment with our authentic selves. Hmm. I, I love that you just said that. Um, if somebody wants more information um, or has any questions for you, how can they find that information? Every, everything's on my website, www.iraisrael.com. I have five DVDs, Mindfulness for Depression, Mindfulness for Anxiety, A Beginner's Guide to Mindfulness Meditation, Beginner's Guide to Happiness. Those are all available in stores all over. And the book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, um, is out uh, in stores everywhere. And then I teach at Esalen and Kripalu. And uh, I just, to me, that's the greatest thing in the world. You know, just be, for me, being able to connect with, with 70 other people and just sit there for a week and, and really, you know, um, not have the, the BS of, uh, of, of um, uh, putting our best foot forward. And really, I, you know, I really model authenticity and try to inspire other people to show up in a new way. There's a beautiful quote it's from the 12-step program. Um, uh, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got, which Einstein reframed, obviously, as uh, the level of consciousness that created the problem cannot fix it. So we need to, you know, experience new things and learn new things constantly, or, or else, you know, we, we could suffer from these terrible afflictions of depression and anxiety. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, um, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I want to um, thank any, everybody for listening. If you want more information about my story, you can go to my blog site at dr-risk.com. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, your favorite social media website. And um, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.